Well, good morning. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. We've been looking at 1 Peter for a few weeks, and last week Brad skipped ahead just because he felt like it. And so we skipped to, to, to chapter 2, but we, now we're back in chapter 1. So if you were here last week, that's why he skipped. That's his, his fault. <clears throat> then we're going to look at uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. They were inquiring what person or time the Spirit in Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and his subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you. By the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So keep keep that keep that passage in front of you as we look uh, this morning at those just three verses. There are two things that I'd like to call your attention to out of this passage. Just two things. The first is as you read through that, as you as we as we work through that this morning, listen to how Peter, the writer of this letter how he describes the Bible. Listen to how he describes the Bible. The Bible uh, is, uh, in some ways, a controversial book. There's a divergence of opinions about what it is. You can more or less put the, two, put the opinions into two rough camps. Maybe there are there's some that don't fit into these boxes. But mostly you can say, either the Bible is, in some way, God's book, or the Bible is just a regular book. Right? That is, either it has some kind of supernatural element to it, some kind of wisdom from above component, either that's true, or it's, it's really just nothing more than a collection of stories and poetry and sayings that represent the wisdom of some, you know, maybe fairly wise people over the years, kind of a thing, over, over the centuries, uh, in a, maybe in a particular region or in a particular tradition, you know. So Christians have always understood the Bible to be the Word of God. Historically, that's one of the things that you could say serves as a boundary for Christianity. You see? Either you believe that the Bible is something unique, important, and unlike any other book, and I'll use that word again, supernatural. That's the historic view of Christianity. That's the view inside the box, inside the borders. Or you think the Bible is not supernatural. It's only natural. Maybe it's important, maybe it's useful, maybe it's wise, maybe it's interesting, but ultimately it's only human. That's where it comes from. Not, not from God, but from our natural, our cultural forefathers, you see. So one of the things that Peter is doing in this part of the letter is describing why the Bible is a supernatural book. yes. Yes, even if even those who even Christians who say the Bible is a supernatural book, we we agree it was written by human beings and they used human processes to write it. Look at how Peter in verse ten he describes how they uh, they searched, they inquired carefully. The writers weren't human dictation machines; they weren't robots. God didn't feed them words and they just mechanically wrote down what they what they were told. No, they wrote with their minds and with their hearts. I mean, I think you can see that very clearly in the fact that this is a letter that Peter is writing. There's passion in it. He's writing to people that he loves, and that's reflected on the pages. 
You know, it's not a bullet point list of theological ideas. It's a, it's a letter written out of love. Yeah, uh, they weren't human dictation machines. They, these are real human documents written by real people, written for real people. And, but at the same time, all that, all that, we say yes to all of that. At the same time, Christians believe the Bible is also a divine book. God participated in the writing process. He guided it. He oversaw it. And because of that, it truly, accurately, infallibly reflects to us who God is and what he's like. And that's what we understand the Apostle Paul to mean when he wrote in 2 Timothy that the Bible is God-breathed. It's breathed out from God. It comes out from Him. It flows out from Him into the world. It's the image, you think of the, the image of breath. I mean, it makes a couple different things come to mind for me. It's the image of air moving through vocal cords. And the vocal cords cause molecules of air to, to bump into each other. And molecules collide with molecules, collide with mo- molecules, collide with molecules, until eventually your eardrum vibrates. And a word... And ultimately, a series of words, a sentence, and an idea gets communicated from one person's head into another, just like we're doing right now. And so we see that with the Word of God. The idea is there's something breathed out from God that goes out from His head. And, and, and if, if, all, if, all else, if all works as it should, it goes into ours. You see, That's one of the images. The other one is uh, the image of new life. We read in Genesis chapter 2 that God made the first human beings by breathing into them, by breathing his breath into them. And now God breathes again in the form of his word. And his breath, when he got, this is like, it's like an equation. When God breathes, new life emerges. You see? That's the image. Once we were dead, and we couldn't hear God, and we couldn't know God, but now God breathes again through his word, and the result is resurrection. New life comes out of a land of spiritual death. Right? This, is, this, is what Christians, this is how Christians historically have viewed the Word of God. And I understand, maybe, maybe you listen to this, and maybe you're not a Christian, and maybe you say, this, this all assumes an awful lot about the Bible. There's a lot of assumption going on here. It's just a book, after all, right? I mean, are Christians reading too much into it? Is seeing it as more than just a book? Is that too much conjecture? Are we perhaps seeing what we want to see? Is this a case of wishful thinking, you know? Well, actually, Christians would respond, not just me, but historically, throughout the church, throughout church history, we would, we would respond by saying, we actually believe all of this because of what we see in the Bible itself. This is not just conjecture, wishful thinking. Boy, I sure hope this book works out. I sure hope I get what I need out of this one. But we, when we read the Bible, we look and we see something that is unique and something that is powerful that we believe to be the breath of God. So one of the unique things about the Bible is how it's focused on telling one single story. One single story from beginning to end. Yes, I know there are lots and lots and lots and lots of little stories in it. I get that. Yes, I know there are 66 books. I know that at least 39 authors participated in it in writing it maybe maybe dozens more uh, but at least 39 authors over a period of at least 1500 years I, I understand that um, there's a there's a lot of time and space and, and people involved and yet hundreds of hundreds of readers hundreds of scholars 
over the years have written about how unified the story of the Bible is. There's a whole, there's a whole body of literature on it. You can read about it uh, on your own if you want. That's exactly what Peter is talking about here in these verses. Look again at the verses. Look at, look at 10, uh, verse 10. In verse 10, he says, Once upon a time, there were, there were people who wrote what we now know as the Bible. And look, they knew that what they were writing was important. And so they took care in their inquiry. They knew that this was a part of something bigger. This wasn't just me writing in my space and time, but it's connected to something that's much bigger picture. And then in verse 11, as they wrote, they were aware of the thing that their writing pointed toward. They're actually surprisingly aware of it. They knew that there was a person, a time coming in the future, it says. And as a matter of fact, they knew that it was this future event was not just centered on just a person in general. It's very specific. It says that they knew that it was centered on that person's suffering and glory. There's a, lot of, there's a surprising amount of detail there. If this, if this claim is true, if, if the claim that all of the writers knew that much about what they were writing, that's pretty astonishing, really. Look at verse 12. He even goes so far as to say that the writers knew that their ultimate audience... The crucial one, the one that they were really most meaningfully writing to, writing to uh, was not the people who immediately read what they wrote. And he says that they were aware of that. One, one person to come uh, is going to endure shame and glory, and this is what they're talking about. They, wanna, they want to write this to their great, 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 great grandchildren. They're aware that this is what they're doing. And that one specific thing that they're writing about, the person to come who would endure shame and glory, that's a pretty important claim. Come back to that in in a few minutes. Now, even in the tradition of biblical studies, there are people who would contest the idea that Peter is talking about here. Or they would at least struggle with it. They would say, yeah, I don't know, that's hard. Um, there, there are people who would say, we shouldn't read a book of the Bible from the perspective of the future. You shouldn't read the Bible backwards. That is, we can't look back into Genesis or Joshua or the Psalms and see references of the future. You know, now that we have sort of the, the further developments in the story, it's not fair, it's not right to look back and say, well, you know, you're reading something into Genesis, you know. That's, that's what they would say. We can't cut the text out of its context like that. It isn't taking the author and his time and his place seriously enough to do so. And so, for example, they would say that it's been a, it would be a mistake. I mean, we just recently had a series of sermons during uh, Advent season on the uh, suffering servant in Isaiah. And there are people who would say it's a mistake to read those story, those, those, uh, that poetry about the suffering servant Isaiah and to say, aha, that's, he's writing about Jesus. Because that's reading backwards. And another way of phrasing it would be to say, Isaiah is really writing for his own day. He's not writing for the future. And that's really the opposite of what Peter is saying here. Peter's saying, uh, that's not true. That, that when Isaiah wrote that, he knew that there was something on yet into the future that he's writing about. And some would, some would add, even beyond that, they would say, look, let's face it. Prophecy, writing about things in the future... I mean, that seems a little unlikely, right? I mean, you're asking me to, you're asking me to believe a lot, uh, to think that there's a guy who writes something and then years later it comes true and he, he had this prescient knowledge 
a foreknowledge of the future. That's, that's a little bit of a stretch for, for some of us, right? Um, that is hard. It is asking a lot in some ways. But all that, that whole perspective is very, again, in, very much in contrast with what we read here in First Peter. He seems to take the exact opposite angle. And in fact, he almost goes so far. I mean, you could almost accuse him of minimizing the local time and place of the biblical authors. I mean, he almost, he almost doesn't care about that at all. Almost. Peter insists that the writers of the Bible, uh, they wrote with the longer time frame in mind. So, what do we see when we examine the Bible itself? How do we resolve this tension? When, we, when you read the Bible, the more you read of the Bible, I think the more you will recognize the deep connections between its different parts. Now, this takes actually digging in and reading it, but the more you read it, the more you look at it, the more you will see how connected uh, the Bible is across time and across space, how unified it actually is. The, more, the, dig, the further you dig, uh, the more you'll see it. Volumes and volumes have been written about how the Bible echoes itself all over, over and over and over again, all throughout. Uh, we talked about this a little bit during the adult, uh, the adult class last, uh, in 2015. The, we were just reading, studying through the Old Testament. And we saw a lot of things like this. Let me give you just a couple examples. Once upon a time, there was a man who was in danger, and so he and his house fled to Egypt. Who am I writing about? Who am I, who am I, who am I talking about? Egypt both saved them and threatened them with extinction. Both at the same time. They were narrowly saved but they were saved only through divine intervention. Who is that? Which story is that? Well, it's the story of Abraham. It's the story of Isaac. It's the story of Jacob. It's the story of Joseph. It's the story of Moses and all the 12 tribes of Israel. And it's a story that's repeated by other people with slightly, slightly different formats and variations over the course of the entire New Testament. And ultimately, it's a story that's repeated even by Jesus himself. And so this one thing becomes a part of a much bigger thing um, and that's, it's really astonishing when you begin to dig into these. Here's a second example. Once there was a woman who could not have a child. And when she was told that she could have a child, she was very surprised. And there was a period of shame and suffering in which she did not have a child, but eventually the promised child was born and there was much rejoicing. Whose story is that? That story is repeated a lot in the Bible. That's the story of Sarah, Rachel, Tamar, Samson's mother, Hannah, Bathsheba, half a dozen at least others. And ultimately, it's the story of Jesus' own birth. Uh, even even Jesus, Mary, Jesus' mother, lives out this story. The connections across time and space, this, the way the stories are woven together is really astonishing. So many of the biblical stories are, are woven so tightly together. There are stories of leaders who fall, examples of the true cost, the true cost, the true spiritual cost of adultery, Stories of the patterns of worship, patterns of life, patterns of death. The whole Bible is almost like a, a piece of classical music. There's variations on a theme, one on top of the other, on top of the other. And, and it's not as if one writer does one of them. One writer's doing bunches of them all at once. On top of another, on top of another. It's so complex, there's nothing else like it, really. So, whether or not you are inclined to believe the Bible... I'll, I, can almost, I can pretty much guarantee you this. If you're willing to dig in and read it, you will begin to see how intricate the, the actual text of the Bible is. How it connects the dots 
across time and space. And then, uh, as Peter calls your attention to here, the, the one story, the more it connects the dots, the more you see that the image is of, is of this one thing, you see. It's really, it's really pretty remarkable. The apostles saw all of this. When you read the New Testament, read any part of the New Testament. I mean, honestly, just pick a book at random. And look, uh, maybe if you, it's, it's easier if you use a Bible that has like study notes and stuff and helps you see where they're quoting. But if you just see how in every single book of the New Testament, how intricately the New Testament authors quote from, use, how they, how they read the, the uh, Old Testament is very different even than how we read the Old Testament. They saw the, the complexities and the interactions so much more clearly even than we do. I think they read it differently than we do. So the apostles saw it. Jesus himself understood the Bible to be one story about himself. For example, when he read from Isaiah, he said he's in the, he's in the place of public worship. He, they give him the scroll. He reads from Isaiah. It's his first sermon. And his, his first sermon is, today this text is fulfilled in your presence. And he says, that, that thing that Isaiah wrote, that's about me. That, that was his first sermon. He, he, interact, he, he not only interacts, he not only mentions, he actually reenacts dozens and dozens of things from the Old Testament in the Gospels. Jesus actually reenacts them. I learned about a new one just this past week. Do you remember that time that Jesus walked on water? Well, not personally, you say, I wasn't there, you know. But do you remember reading about that time that Jesus walked on water? Why did he do that? Was it just to be impressive? Was it just to look cool? You know, was it a great party trick? Um, was it to demonstrate that he had divine power? Because, I mean, the, the truth is, if he wanted to demonstrate that he had divine power, he could have done that in any number of ways. Why walking on water specifically? Well, I heard somebody talk about this past week. In Job chapter 9, it describes a person who walks on water. And the actual phrase that it uses is that there's, there's one who comes who tramples on the waves. And oh my, there's so much, there's so much story here. You know, the Israelites, were, were, they were not a seafaring people. The sea was symbolic of death to them. And the waves were symbolic of the tumult of life. And it was the, the thing that most threatens to undo you is to be out on the waves. And then someone comes along and tramples them. And then... In the way that the Gospels record Jesus walking on the water, it intentionally borrows that phrase. It doesn't say, in, uh, actually in the Greek Septuagint, da-da-da-da, it it, it, the phrase it actually uses is that Jesus came out and he trampled on the water. That's what it says. And so when Jesus chooses to do this, he's not just, uh, he hasn't just thought up a cool party trick, like, hey guys, watch what I can do. Um, what he's doing is he's saying, by the way, I'm the one who walks on the water. And you know who it was in Job who walked on the water? It says very explicitly, it was the Lord. It was the God who made the universe. He's the one who tramples on the waves. And Jesus walks out on the water and says, that's who I am. I read about one, uh, one scholar who just started making a list of all the prophecies that he saw uh, from the Old Testament that were fulfilled in Jesus. And he, uh, ca- he cataloged 333 of them and he described them in this way when combined together they describe in detail virtually every aspect of the life and ministry of Jesus and he, and he said and there's still more to be found I'm still, I'm still digging 
When Peter wrote this letter, when he said that the prophet searched and inquired carefully about the things of head, he was pointing to this level of connectedness, this kind of intricacy and complexity. And it made me think of something like this. Imagine you're out in the desert out here, and you're just going on a great long, you know, hours-long hike out into the boonies of the desert, and suddenly you come across a cave. And uh, you decide to go inside the cave, and of course it's dark and damp and all of the things that caves are. Maybe even a little menacing, until you put on your headlamp, and you turn it on, and you explore a little, and then you see on the side of the cave a mark. Oh, that's pretty interesting. And as you go further in, you discover that it's part of a series of marks. Huh. And as you explore a little further, you see that the, the marks are uh, part of bigger shapes and letters. This is a whole series of never-before-found hieroglyphs in a cave that you've just discovered. It becomes apparent. This is, these are not simple symbols. This is not just, man, buffalo. You know, this is, this is something rich and complex. There's stories and ideas communicated through these hieroglyphs. The more you look at it, the more you see. How do you react to the cave? What do you make of it all? I think it's very interesting. I think there's basically two broad categories of reactions to the cave. You will either think of this cave as something interesting, important, worthy of attention, compelling enough to at least try to understand it, and you'd stand there in the cave and you'd scribble down notes and you're trying to decipher. Or maybe if you, maybe, oh, I'm not trained in this kind of thing, so maybe you bring in a trained archaeologist wearing a high-crowned, wide-brimmed, sable-colored fedora. And you, you, you either, I think you either try to, you do something to understand the cave markings. Or you think, nah, that's cool and all, but it's not important enough for me to spend much time on it. And so maybe you snap a photo with your phone and then you, and then you continue your hike. I just think there's, there's, really, two, there's really two basic reactions to, the, to this to these hieroglyphs you just found. And I think that it's very interesting that the Bible is the same way. It really requires a response from us. If you encounter the Bible, uh, there's no such thing as a non-response. You'll either respond one way or the other. Over the centuries, literally billions of people, not an exaggeration, literally billions of people have found it to be a compelling book. And others have decided that it, was, it really just wasn't worth that much of their time. And so the question, when, now that you've encountered the Bible, is which, which one are you? Right? So that's the first thing to call your attention to about this passage. The second thing uh, is it maybe even, maybe even better. Here's the second thing to call your attention to from this part of Peter's letter. Listen as we look at the verses again, to how Peter very specifically describes the Bible's one story. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. And so here Peter says, 
that the writers of the Bible <clears throat> knew very specifically that they were writing about a time in the future when there would be one man and the one man would suffer and then be glorified. And then he says the most astonishing thing. He says, the angels who have been there from the beginning, they were there as the world was being created. The angels who've been watching this from the beginning, they've had front row seats to the entirety of human history. These very same angels marvel at the story of the one man who suffered and then was glorified. They long to understand the story that they're watching play out. They're surprised. They're shocked. But see, I just think, what's so surprising about all of this? You know? What's so surprising? Is it surprising to them that one man suffered? No. I mean, how many find me people that don't suffer? Right? Um, it can't be it. Everybody suffered. I mean, to different degrees, but... Uh, in some way, everybody suffers. So it's not the fact that someone suffered. Is it that he was later glorified? He suffered first and then was glorified, and that trajectory is maybe um, uncommon? No, I don't think that's it. Because there are people in history that have suffered and then been glorified. I mean, you can think of people who've gone through the hard time and then they've had the glorious thing. I mean, that's like a, that's like, there's, there's films made about that, right? I think you could probably think of a half dozen films that have that storyline. Every sports movie that's ever been made has that storyline, story right? Was it because God's story for the world in, involved people? And they're looking down, angels are looking down and like, whoa, I can't believe that God cares about people. Um, or is it that he, I can't believe that God will use people to accomplish his purposes. I don't think that's it. Because that's not what specifically Peter references here. He talks about the one man and his suffering, and his glory. And I think that's the key. It's not the fact that he suffers. It's the extent of it. The fa- it's not the fact of the one man's humiliation. It's just inc- how incredibly humiliated he was. Jesus said, said this about himself. He said, Foxes have holes, and birds in the air, of the air have nests. But the one who made the foxes and the birds has nowhere to lay his head. I heard someone say this past week, I've been pretty broke before, but I've, I've always had a place to lay my head. The one who took on flesh to live among us, as John described him, he had nowhere to live once he had come to live among us. The ancient of days became an infant of days. The one who couldn't be contained by the heavens and the earth was placed in a feeding trough. The one who created life had to be born, and he had to depend on someone who depended on him. Is that unexpected? I can see why the angels would start to marvel at this point, right? But it goes on. The one who created life experienced all of life's harshest ugliness. He was born into poverty. Poverty. The one who, process, uh, who possessed the one who possessed ultimate wisdom had to be taught. The one who ruled everything chose to submit to others. His own family called him crazy. His friends abandoned him. The king of everything allowed peasants to taunt him. The one who created the rocks. 
and who bears the name Rock of Ages was nearly stoned to death. Even his miracles, like you'd think, well, at least they'll believe the miracles, right? Because, I mean, they're amazing. Uh, Even his miracles were said to be acts of demonic evil. He restrained himself constantly, choosing to be humiliated. He was betrayed by the kiss and the embrace of a false friend. He was treated like a criminal and abandoned by all. He He listened quietly as people lied about him at his trial. He was spit upon by nobodies. He, was, he willingly walked to his own death. And he could have stopped it all at any moment. And he didn't. Psalm 22 describes him this way. He is a worm and not a man. Scorned by mankind and despised by the people. Isaiah wrote, he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows who was acquainted with grief. One Puritan writer put it this way. Was not this astonishing self-denial that he, who from eternity had his father's smiles and honors, he that from the creation was adored and worshipped by angels as their God, that he must now become a footstool for every miscreant to tread upon. And I got annoyed at the traffic lights yesterday. Listen. And take comfort in this. Jesus knows humiliation. What's the worst humiliation you've ever endured? When, did, when in your life have you felt the most shame? Jesus knows how that feels. And your pain echoes in his heart. That's what angels wonder about. And we read in Philippians chapter 2 that even though Jesus Christ was in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God something to cling to. And so he let it go. He emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And all the angels are watching this all, and they marvel at how low, lower, lowest the Son of God was willing to go. Then, in Philippians chapter 2, it tells us, because of his humiliation, God exalted him, and he was given the name that is above every name. And the time is coming that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, and in heaven and on earth, and even the knees that are under the earth, it says. Yeah, the dead knees are also going to bend and bow to the one who is the king. It's not just the angels who will be there this time. We all will have a front row seat to his glory. And at that time, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the true Lord and King of everything. And so the story is down, 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 beyond what anyone can fathom. And then it's up, 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 beyond what anyone could ever dream. That's the story of the one man that Peter is talking about. His suffering and his exaltation, about which all the biblical writers searched and inquired carefully. That's the story that the angels watched with bated breath. So the question before you is this. What kind of person are you? Are you the the kind of person who will encounter a book like this? A story like this? A person like this? And then snap a quick photo and then walk away. Or does this seem like something you should dig into a little bit deeper? Amen. Amen.